Mike Venar is probably most well-known as the axe-waggling left-hander putting added crunch and guitar texture into Biffy Clyro's current live setup. I've known Mike since his earlier incarnation as both axe-waggler and lead singer in Manchester's panoramic prog rock soundscape as Ocean Size. If you're familiar with Ocean Size and with Mike's solo work, you'll be aware of his impressive ear for melody and the dexterous guitar playing of the music he's made, which has been described with such adjectives as monolithic, graceful and intricately arranged. You may not be familiar, however, with his love of something quite different, the ramshackle spontaneity and wobbly charm of Stockton, California's Pavement, probably one of the most idiosyncratic American bands to appear on the indie rock scene of the early 90s. Pavement made a mark on many of us with their clatter of bumped-together guitars and whip-smart lyrics, a compelling tangle typified no better than on their third album, 1995's Wowie Zowie. At the time, the record was considered a bit of a misstep by critics, who bemoaned its lack of slacker sing-alongs, deeming it inconsistent and incoherent. But with time, it's taken on more and more of a mythical position in the music of the period, thanks to the affection it's come to be held in by both fans and fellow musicians alike, many of whom have discovered, much like Mike did, that its twists and turns, its scrapes and swings through mania, pathos, whimsy and joy, pretty much sum up not just the fortunes of alternative music since that time, but also the journey of our own highs and lows, life's very own bumble of mishaps and revelations. Skype line with Mike, Mike Venart from Mike Venart and also from Ocean Size. <laughs> Formerly of. Uh, currently of Mike Venart. Yeah. We're going to talk about Pavement's Wowie Zowie, aren't we? Yeah. And I guess my first question for you, and it just so happens it's also my favourite Pavement record. Um, right on. Is just really how you came to it, really, and, and why that one in particular? Okay, well, there's a there's a bit of a backstory on how I even got introduced to pavement. It didn't it didn't start well. Um, it would have been about sort of 1992. Yeah. Um, and my stepfather, who is coincidentally my um, guitar teacher, and that's a that's another podcast in itself. Okay. That particular story, but um, he he once took he used to take his students and whatnot out. Uh, of an evening to to whatever gigs they fancied going to and he once took a a boatload of them to a gig and he came to me the next day and he said okay last night i saw the worst band in the world do not ever ever go and see pavement and so for some reason i I took him at his word and you know for for the years after that i'd go to various festivals like red in phoenix festival and glastonbury and all that kind of stuff and this band pavement were on everywhere i went and and i never watched them because i was i was told they were rubbish i was warned off and in hindsight to be honest in 1992 i probably wasn't quite ready for them anyway most of the bands that i listened to weren't i wasn't really into ramshackle music i I could appreciate sort of um aggressive noise and things like that but my tastes weren't quite i wasn't quite open-minded enough for something like that i was into more sort of really really organized madness like i don't know 
Mr. Bungle or something like that. I could, I could, I was into all that, but mm. Pavement was was a bit out there in that respect. So anyway, I ignored him for years, and then sure enough, I think it was just after Brighton the Corners came out. It was just on at a party, and it took until the first chorus of the first song for me to go, "What the fuck is this?" Right, and um, and that was it. I was just hooked forevermore after that. And Wowie Zowie was the second album I heard, and I realised that it was the previous record that they'd done before Bright in the Corners, which I absolutely loved. Mm. And Wowie Zowie, for a number of years, to be quite honest, I found not so much sort of impenetrable, but I just couldn't... It, it sounded to me like a band in development, and, and consequently, for a while, I didn't go even further backwards because I thought, well, if, this, if Wowie Zowie is their third album... <laughs> What kind of horrors lie before this? How how much more you know disorganized could they possibly sound? Because Wowie Zowie, it, they handed it in, allegedly handed it into the record company, and the record company just didn't know what to do with it. And it's like it's eighteen tracks of primarily what sounds like just one take wonders. Like they've it sounds like the, the tunes are barely rehearsed. They don't sound finished. They yeah. don't. Um, but yeah. So anyway, I I was living in. Salford at this point I'd gone to university um I was living on my own um I'd just broken up with my girlfriend which is to read that she dumped me and I was on my Todd and I was um I was used to live on Coronation Street as it happens literally and uh, this is literally and I rather more coincidentally this was when Oceanside had just formed and we used to rehearse next to the Rovers Return pub um <laughs> so I used to I used to walk um, through the dark streets of Salford every morning to go and do some weird job. I used to work at the probation office okay. in, in Manchester. That sounds like a very Mancunian job to have while you're scratching to <laughs> a band together. Yeah, well, I was I was a receptionist. Right, because Ian Curtis, didn't he work... I know he was like a s civil servant. Um, Marky Smith was like a shipping clerk or something, wasn't it? So I think of those kind of... <laughs> grimy industrial like uh mancunian jobs that that inspire so much great music yeah yeah well that was it i used to get up i used to uh walk for 20 minutes to get the tram yeah. get the tram the into tram. town walk for another 10 minutes another tram hey it's great man we still have it it's awesome and then i'd get the um get the bus up to this probation center where i used to work uh, as a receptionist and i used to work in a bulletproof glass Amazing. box yeah, it was kind of like Jaws where he goes down in the cage and you're just surrounded by these shady buggers all day long <laughs> who were getting more and more angry. But it was a weird time and all I had, I just for some reason just kept listening to Wowie Zowie, I had a tape of it. So this was, is this by now like late 90s? This is this is like 2000 okay. by this point. I'd sort of only just kind of, I was a latecomer and I'd, I'd actually been to sea pavement a couple of times by oh, this really? point. And hadn't just hadn't paid any attention, <laughs> and so I worked my way backwards and got to this yeah. album, and uh, it's it's just so peculiar. I mean, there's immediate sort of standout tracks like mm. "Grounded," namely mm. that 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 the times that I saw them, they opened with it. So it always, you know, that has since become my absolute favorite song. I could I could talk a while about the the sort of hidden depths within sure. that tune that are, at, that, that are still sort mm. of confound me to this day. I'm always sort of threatening to do a cover version of that song, thinking that it'd be 
easy, but it actually wouldn't, especially from a drumming point of view, because if you listen to it, that it kind of changes tempo very subtly every couple of sections, and then you can't tell if it's swung or if it's straight time, and, and it's stuff like that that you can't really sort of, you can't learn. It just kind of, it kind of does that, you know. That's interesting, because I've listened back, had another listen through to the record this morning. I mean, it's mm. a record I knew really well. Again, probably more than any other pavement record it was it was one that chimed with me i had a friend mm. who was a fan and he just used to tape the records for me and this, that one stood mm. out but i was listening you know sort of with a critical ear kind of thinking how these songs were put together and i sort of wasn't really listening to the drumming i'd have to go back and listen to that i've got this general sort of feeling that the drumming is kind of got that sort of joining in feel to it but i think there's a lot more yeah, yeah. than that going on isn't there yeah
I listened to it for, for the first time on a new set of speakers. Okay. I got some new speakers in my studio. And I heard all kinds of stuff that I'd never noticed before. In the first song, there's like a, a tap running or something <laughs> like that. There's numerous times where there's these screaming fuzzy guitars that I just hadn't paid attention to because I'm too busy focusing on the, the really expressive uh-huh. vocals or, or, or just the underlying chords. Yeah. I love all their sort of weird weird tunings that they use all the time and then but you're not focusing on the things that are glaringly obvious like these really jarring sort of fuzzy lead lines that are happening virtually all the bloody time yeah i read some piece where it's they kind of say that mark was was sort of leaving gaps that he filled with guitar lines instead of vocal hooks Mm. you know i don't know how conscious that was but there's a lot going on melodically for sure yeah i read an article about this a few few months ago where it the, the, the sort of party line quote on it was that it was the sound of a band just flinging tons of shit at the wall and being amazed that most of it sticks and it does sound so kind of spontaneous and so that'll do kind of yes. makeshift and uh that was an attitude that i could never have, have got used to probably at the time that it even came out to be honest um, and to this day, it's something that I really, I really sort of hold dear in terms of when I'm recording. Quite often, I'll leave things in that are from the demo version um, because I can't mm. replicate it. And I, and I, if I was to try and relearn it, I'd probably tidy it yeah. up a little bit. And you know, and, and those things. I mean, there's 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 some stuff in a song called um, "Fight This Generation" where after this long meandering jam that gets more and more aggressive. It just goes into this breakdown with this absolutely ludicrous keyboard part, and it's as if they've kind of plugged in the synth and found the worst <laughs> sound possible, and then played a melody that doesn't fit at all. That's barely in time, and gone. Yeah, that sounds okay, you know, and just left it in. And there's there's so many things like that. There's something kind of sloppy about everything across the board, mm. but it doesn't feel like oh, we'll leave it like that, it's half finished. It all feels like it fits, Mm. you know, it's correct. Yeah, yeah. well, you know, uh, but by this point, having heard it so many times, it's Mm. ingrained in my memory Mm. so perfectly that you take any of these wrong parts out and the whole thing would be wrong. You know, I could spot a remix of this album at a thousand (laughs) paces, you know what I mean? I never want want to hear, you know, Wowie Zowie Redux. I don't, you know, you can't, you you can't mess with something like this, but it's just so odd. And as a matter of fact, it was when they were putting out the deluxe editions where you buy each album and you get like 50 extra tracks with each one. Um, Me and my friend, uh, John Lee Martin, who used to be in Kong and he's in Then Thickens Mm. and all that, his kind of, I was was saying, what are they going to do when they put out Wowie Zowie? Because all the the B-sides up to this point had been kind Mm. of a mess, kind of scrappy. And I was like, surely Wowie Zowie, the the extra stuff can't be any more screwed (laughs) up, you know? And he was like, I I just said, to be honest, that that album, it kind of does my head in a little bit. And he kind of... He changed my mind on it. He was like, "You need to listen to it again. It's it's the best one." And and when I returned to it as as more sure. of an adult, I realised it is the more experimental album they did. You know? Do you think that? Because I feel like it's it's kind of like emotionally together in a way that none of the others are. There is like an emotional intelligence going on, and and it comes from the beginning. You know, from we dance. You know, and it's like mm, I can't enjoy yeah. myself. You can't enjoy yourself. Mm. That feels very kind of like melancholy from the off. And I think that yeah. totally runs through the record in a way that some of the pavement stuff is just a buck a bit crazy. 
Yeah, I mean, people sort of downplay Bright in the Corners and Terror Twilight as being the point where they sort of jumped yeah, the shark a little up. bit and it all got a little too coherent. But I, I love mm. that stuff. I think it's absolutely fantastic. Um, I can understand that it's kind of, it's too sophisticated by pavement standards. And this is, and Wowie Zowie is kind of their, the apex of their just wildness. They're just sort of just, just doing their thing. Um, so, yeah, I mean, in, in an emotional respect, it is... It's just abstract. Yeah. Everything about it is incredibly abstract and, and unusual. Um, and from there on, I think that, you know, what they did after that was a reaction to this album, a reaction okay. against it that, you know, it just it mm. couldn't it couldn't be like this after that, you know. person sort of suggesting that Wowie Zowie is part of a, of a two record sort of idea which Bright in the Corners is the other side of in a way that Amnesiac yeah. and Kid A are sort of two sides of the same idea and that they don't that yeah. neither sort of makes sense without the other one alongside it yeah um, which is you know an interesting way of looking at it yeah I, I appreciate that I think that the most direct comparison that I've read would be the White Album. Yeah. And I can totally see that, that it's, again, the White Album. A lot of people think that the White Album should have been condensed down to one disc, um, but that would, it 
it wouldn't have the same charm of it being this sprawling, really, really varied. You know, the White Album, just like Wowie Zowie, is just, you know, you've got stuff from everything from the sensitive stuff like Blackout and mm. Grounded to Serpentine Pad. And I think that um, Fight This Generation is just, there's something so sinister and dark about that sort of big jam yeah. passage. There's a lot of different sort of atmospheres that they're doing that, whereas I think that, to be honest, you know, Bright in the Corners is kind of one mm. sensibility to me, mm. for the most part. It, it's very pleasant, yeah. mostly. Um, whereas Wowie Zowie is just is kind of abrasive. You know, I, I struggle to play it <laughs> when I'm with other people because it just kind of pisses them off. Uh, when I was in a studio, for some reason, we brought up something off it on the you know on the big speakers in a studio and and it, it had nothing there was nothing lacking to it yeah mix yeah. wise there's nothing wrong i guess it's more can you really get on board with these changes of direction and sort of different vibes and the yeah, humor yeah. of it as well because i think there's a tongue-in-cheekness to it that some people just think mm. is the message of it it's oh we're pissing around sort of thing and mm. i don't think that's the point yeah. this is what i felt listening to this and thinking about you and how you write music is about the order. Mm. And you've already mentioned that because I think of you as having, you know, even in Ocean Size where there was a lot of stuff going on, a lot of sections to songs, mm. there's, it doesn't feel like there's so much sort of improvised. Everything's quite kind of like, um, it's got its place. It, well, it, it certainly with Ocean Size, the way that we composed was pretty much for the most part, we were all together and just bouncing off each other in real time. It, it very rarely did anybody bring in a riff or mm. bring in, you know, Mark Heron would often bring in yeah. a beat and we'd have to try and work out what he wanted to hear over that beat. And because we, our memories were so absolutely <laughs> shocking, we used to record every single okay. rehearsal we ever did. Um, so, and then we'd edit that down. So it was, it was initially improvised and then, you know, then it was edited down to be a song. To, like I say, to this day, my my main method of composition is to, if I am working on something that's that I'm, where I'm actually I've got an idea on guitar, I will press record with a click track running before I've even finalised what the idea mm -hmm. actually is, and I'll probably just play for a couple of minutes. And there's been a handful of occasions where, because I don't really know what I'm playing because I haven't solidified it in my mind, where the song will, will just happen. I'll just record it exactly mm -hmm. as it is and I'll, I'll leave it. Or maybe I'll, I'll repeat the whole thing. Um, but those weird changes of time signature and, and chord changes will be entirely improvised, but they'll, they'll be solidified now in the recording, but in a way that I could never have conjured if I'd have just tried to work it out sure. on guitar on my own. But I suppose the flip of that is presumably how pavement worked, which to me just feels more like whatever you do in the moment has validity. I got as far on the, you know, the big deluxe re-release version. It's, um, what is it? The Sorted mm. Sentinels version. I didn't get yeah, all the way yeah. to the end of it today because it was quite long, but I got as far as um, some like different versions of Fight This Generation that they seem to have recorded somewhere. You know, I haven't listened to that in years, to be honest. I have, I, I've, I've not paid a whole lot of attention. Those things are a real slog. <laughs> and, and they are. And there's like an eight-minute version of Fight This Generation. Somebody's playing piano, and there's like a very basic drum beat, and it sounds like a lot of what they're mm. doing is just 
riffing and sort of purposely being sloppy in terms of like the notes and you know you hear lots of mm. these little discord notes played on the piano and it feels like there's space right. for that all to be there when they whenever they play they could be pretty nonchalant sometimes yeah i've definitely seen them like be be great and then be a little bit like they're just going a little yeah. too far with the with the nonchalance but it sounds thing. like there's a place for that in the band you have license to do that when you turn up and play that's the nature mm. of pavement clearly malcolmus will sort of improvise vocally and even his, his delivery or his lyrics he'll, he'll change them up and i've mm. never done that that's never really been my experience playing it as a musician i mean i've seen you play a few times and i know the ocean size records but there wasn't that much mm. kind of like let's play this bit a bit differently right no 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 there wasn't really space for it and I, and the, the reason for that was um some of it was was actually quite tricky yeah. and quite often because of the constant changing of time signature and whatnot if there was any kind of improvisation around the numbers as it were then the whole thing would derail and it was just really embarrassing having to stop <laughs> quite often you're <laughs> when, playing in nine why are you playing in nine do that. this bit's in seven. Oh no oh god yeah there was an awful lot of that which i try not to think about but the, the fact that on this record there's each song has a, a big jam right. in the middle of it, you know, or yeah. at the end, you know, Best Friend's mm. Arm or, you know, Extradition, Pueblo, Fight This Generation, Half a Canyon. All these songs have just got these passages in them where, again, coming back to what you're saying, that there's that there's just a lot of space in everything. Although a lot of the guitar sounds can be pretty mm. crummy or, or pretty lush, it, coming back to what you were saying, that the mix is absolutely... It's world class. It just sounds incredible. So just so the idea that they would go in and <laughs> go into what was probably a really expensive studio with not even a rehearsed album, just jam you know, it. it's just but it, yeah, just blag it out. It's fucking hilarious. I think it's pretty brave. <laughs> yeah, it is brave. Yeah. One note about this album is that I think it's actually the first one with Bob Nastanovich actually okay. on it. Uh, I think the previous two albums he didn't actually play on, and so you can hear him shouting and bawling in certain songs as he, as he does. And I think that coming back to what we were saying before about you know this being the real heart of, of Pavement's catalogue, it's the most true mm. of them. And I think that's a lot to do with Bob Nastanovich because his sort of his his manner and what he brings is just so out there. You know, is is. A bit of a wild man. You've got the extra additional mm. percussion, the really weird textures and synth stuff, and then just his vocals, which <laughs> just, you know, just him kind of just yelling. With the first time I saw him, I was like, oh man, I could really do without that guy. And then grew to absolutely adore him, you know. Well, yeah, he's almost like a Bez kind of character in a way. Like, well, who's this guy sort of like <laughs> jamming along or whatever? But it becomes more and more sort of key for the music to be like sort of willfully played out of time yeah. that's something that i that i really grew to love by listening to a lot of those early full records where you hear right. the guitars sort of slide out of time and and suddenly they're sort of in the off beats where and it's an evolutionary sort of process in the music that you get used mm. to as a listener and then if you try to correct that somehow like you say remix it or do covers of it it suddenly collapses yeah, yeah totally look up to people so tall to you i can't so i won't stand up 
American bands, certainly that sort of broke through in the way that Pavement kind of did, yeah. you know, that we remember Pavement and that we cherish those records in the way that we don't Truman's Water or some of these like scronky bands that we're all out there, but um, mm. are less cherished is partly the playing, but partly the songs that are behind it ultimately i think like what i love listening back to this record is there are these sort of gems of riffs and melodies yeah if you know if somebody had come up with that in a room like that bit when fight this generation really gets going that would i'd be that's yeah. the song we need that bit let's use that and turn it into a big riff and i know you <laughs> yeah. do the same in a way like, let's use that yeah bit. yeah yeah and totally. for them it's almost like no let's not like front load this yeah let's end up there yes they're kind of ambling to the idea mm. <laughs> working up to a point where you can just slip it in without people kind of going that's the single you know totally I, I mean i love the idea that they almost butcher their own songs like at&t that they were threatening to release that as a single but maltmus is actually playing drums on that one i mean it's even more loose than usual and you kind of like get the feeling of were they just treating that one as a demo and maybe they were going to redo it or something and they've just gone, oh, no, that's how it's going to sound. That'll, That'll be fine, yeah. Another weird thing that really occurred to me today because I was listening to Grounded for the thousandth time, it contains the word traips. He says uh, he traips around the table and I'm pretty sure the only other person I've ever heard use the word traips is my grandmother. <laughs> it's one of the most English words in the whole language, is it not? I mean, like, I don't... The name of the band is clearly... It's them saying we get English culture and we can take mm. it to Americans and, and sort of Americanize it. it. Just just the sort of diction that I find throughout and the vocab, and the way that it's expressed, the way that it's sort of fitted in with the meter sometimes, like in, in Shady Lane, which obviously isn't mm. on this album, but he says, um, tell me off in the hotel lobby right in front of all the bellboys and the over-friendly concierge. There's something about the way, firstly, the phrase, tell yeah. me off. And, you know, that's that, that feels like a real Englishism. But just, again, the way that that is fitted in, he crowbars mm. these phrases in, you know, there's, what's the other one? Watch out for the gypsy children with electric dresses. They're insane. It's like, there's hundreds of examples of these things where you're like, why did you decide to crowbar that in a space of one bar, you know? I went to Japan a few months back and I bought the Wowie Zowie Japanese import because you get the words oh, with it. I was like, oh, brilliant. But sure enough, the words that you want to know, <laughs> it just, it's just got a load of question oh. marks. I think that it's just him just sounding off, just that stuff in uh, Best Friend's Arm and just making a noise, you know. It's a really key point, this thing about British and Englishness in an American mm. band. And I think Pavement are the archetypal sort of American slacker band that somehow shoehorned a very English sort of sensibility into the words specifically, but also mm. generally channeling the fall and beef heart and things like that. That's obviously not all British, yeah. but that very kind of particular, like you say, eccentricity words that don't necessarily translate. And mm. It's perfect for pavement when you try and delve into the meaning of these songs to stumble across words that just don't really fit. And that sort of come a mask mm. for what the real meaning is. If I use this word, trapes or whatever it is, then, I mean, my mm. heart my heart made is made of gravy. of gravy, which again, doesn't seem like an American, <laughs> th although, you know, I live in Texas, people like their gravy down here, but not in the yeah. way that we think of gravy. And, and I think there's something very uh, <laughs> British about the word gravy. <laughs> I think people often try and sort of, conjure lyrics up in a phonetic sense but the fact that Steve Maltmus if indeed that's what he's doing 
is able to just put these words together, the way that these phrases are put together. There's absolutely nobody else that does this. And, and I think that the following album, Bright in the Corners, is where he really gets it together. And th- whilst it's hard to distinguish any meaning in that stuff either, it's actually much more evocative, I think. But Wowie Zowie is just uh, more abstract and, and more kind of more funny. When you go down that route, you know, you leave it a lot more open to interpretation and things can kind of take on mm. more meaning because you're vaguer. You know, I just think he must be so bright and so quick with words if he's just sort of coming mm. up with stuff. And of course, you know what it's like being in a room where it's loud. You can sing mm. whatever you want, can't you? Nobody will hear it. So you don't have to commit to anything. And I just think he must have been mm. very sharp to be able to sort of commit to something like pick out the Brazilian nuts for your engagement. I mean, it's it's so evocative. <laughs> it's so precise. It's Brazilian mm. nuts and it's an engagement. There, there were two very particular yeah, yeah. ideas. What I love as well, I was reading that they um, they were recording that song as they were packing the gear up. So it was, a, it was a total afterthought that became the opening song on the album, which just says it all. You so know? I suppose you don't want to say too much about a record like this in case it kind of explodes the myth that you can tap mm. into great art by accident sort of thing. By overanalyzing it, you can kind of make it disappear somehow. Yeah, ruin the magic. Did this rub off in any other way? Like the 
the structures or tunings or or anything like that in music that you've made specifically the guitar tones which is a kind of a geeky thing to get into um but i remember when i used to listen to this album specifically walking around salford i remember thinking that the the stuff that i was hearing in rattled by the rush Mm. and grounded and whatnot these were just the dream guitar sounds and this was pre-internet i didn't i didn't have access to anything like that and i just when i found out what it was it was like i've made it i have everything i need because i have a rat okay and it was the rat (laughs) that made the difference yeah for me yeah totally it's quite a clean tone well the guitars specifically he's a primarily a strat man which you know in indie rock circles is kind of sneered at for being well purely because of eric clapton i think but um it's such a rich guitar sound yeah one of the most interesting characteristics of pavement musically is the weird tunings that he used so often in any given chord there'll there'll be a weird drone there'll be a kind of a wrong note in there Mm. i love that stuff and um i find it absolutely fascinating unfortunately when i try and use the same tunings which i've managed to get hold of it doesn't become obvious how to a play those songs and b construct your own chords out of it it's i don't know how he arrived at these tunings or how he wrote songs from them it just it's incredible man it really is i know what you mean you and i we've both used a lot of different tunings and Mm. whenever you put a guitar in a tuning it'll suggest something straight away i generally Mm. find or it will you'll suddenly understand how something that's written in that tuning kind of makes sense like for instance cashmere or something by led zeppelin yeah yeah like i say it doesn't the songs don't really reveal themselves but they are fantastic fun Mm. i had the tuning for starlings in the slipstream okay the other day i had a a go with that and got a, a couple of little sections out but to be honest, I haven't really experimented with weird tunings. It's mainly variations on drop D. Okay. Again, it doesn't necessarily come very easily to me. I find myself slipping into sort of habitual 145 diatonic boring stuff, really. <laughs> it's only if the tuning is is that out there that I can get something interesting. So dad, gad and whatnot doesn't necessarily do anything for me, sure. but I've never tried anything like these pavement tunings. So I'm going to give it a good go. We are listeners getting into the depths of tuning talk here <laughs> and it might not be for everyone, but I've been writing in, in a converged tuning. Well, converge are known for their very sort of heavy riffs yeah. and sort of discordant like stabs and thing. And it is quite yeah. a discordant tuning. But I think you find your own place with it that, for me, turned out I was trying to clean up the tuning all the time, make it a little more sort of harmonic than discordant. Yeah, and yeah. In that process, you discover shapes and chords that you never would have, and I think it's fascinating. I'm all for it. Yeah, I mean, that's where the inspiration sort of comes, really. It's being taken out of your comfort zone, isn't it? But I didn't know that about Converge. I didn't realise they, they used wacky tunings. I'll have to check it out. It's mainly like a drop tuning. Right. You know, lots of drop C. But you'll find that they have, for instance, this tuning is got an F and then a G sharp next to it. So right. straight away you're close wow. and yeah. you can get very sort of discordant things quickly. And, you know, a lot of those really pounding mathcore songs that have these sudden stabs that just kind of go, you're not yeah. really realizing it, but actually that's a semitone like chord sort of thing. And yeah, when you totally. tune like that, it's really easy to just get those just like wherever you are on the neck, just go right of course wow magic (laughs) we got um my friend gordon used to work for the trailer dead guys yeah and he got me uh, a set list where they were playing a load of the madonna stuff 
Okay. And that was like the entire guitar tuned to B or something like that. Okay. That was great fun to work with. We also once gave, we once lent a guitar to Park Chimp. Okay. And when we got that back, every string was tuned to B as well. And when you listen to it, you're like, of course, that's how they sound that's so how massive. They do it. You know? Yeah, of course, of course. <laughs> Sonic Youth, one of the tunings they used to do would be half of the guitar tuned to, say, A and half tuned mm. to A sharp. But then you've got one of them will probably be doing something a little more melodic, and the other one can just do noises or discords. Yeah. And if you go back to that very early Sonic Youth stuff, Bad Moon Rising and earlier, you can hear where it's all in there. And it's messy, mm. you know, and or the phasing that you get makes the song. Yeah, I've done all, that yeah. in the studio before, just had people just tune slightly off the note and then you suddenly yeah. get these amazing phasing effects and bends that you can do and stuff. Yeah, there's a whole world in there, micro-tuning, a whole world yeah, of yeah. pain and discovery out there. <laughs> <laughs> Frequently called numbers Snowing when you slumber Everyone knows you do Why won't you admit it's great you And take it all Corporate integration From the corporation I don't need this Corporation attitude Probably the the musicality is something that maybe gets a little overlooked, but it has to be there for it to work melodically as much as anything else. Yeah, I mean, his voice, for a start, is Mm. just so incredibly expressive. And, you know, when you first hear it, you're kind of hung up on, he's kind of not singing in tune, but he's kind of half talking. And it's just so central to the whole style and, and, and the expression of the words and everything. And like I say, I just find it to be incredibly expressive and... You know, in the same way that if you tried to sing a, a Flame and Lips song and you'd, you'd try and sing it in <laughs> tune and it wouldn't sound very good, you know. This brings me back to kind of one of my main subjects, I suppose, doing this podcast, which is about mm. how that's changed and how now it's so much easier to make music that stays in tune or you correct it afterwards. Have we lost a bit of that sort of sloppiness that yeah. makes that makes a record like Wowie's Owie so kind of enchanting and real sounding <laughs> that we would nowadays correct away some of that kind of sloppiness. Yeah, I 100% think that. I mean, I've been on the receiving end of some of this. I played on Opposites, the Biffy Clyro album. Okay. And, you know, the producer, Garth, who I love to bits, he's great fun, but we kind of butted heads a little bit because he's very much kind of like tuning, 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 you know, you haven't a sort of tune to each chord at a time. And I kind of threw my bears out of the pram. I was like, this is not how it's done, man. This is not what it's about. It's not what music is about. 
he's from the school of making fucking smash hit records and I'm the world's biggest pavement yeah. fan. So it's kind of <laughs> like, I understand it. And I guess it's horses for courses, but personally to me, a guitar isn't a hundred percent in tune. Some of the best songs of all time, songs that are recognized universally mm. by the Beatles, etc., as being the greatest and most classic songs of all time are not in fucking tune. And that's, fine with me and in and indeed coming back to what i just said if it was in tune would it be as good people like to sort of crowbar a, a punk rock aesthetic or ethic into it that's always been there since the birth of rock and roll is just people playing scrappily out of time out of tune and that to me is character now conversely my favorite band is Cardiacs, and they are pretty much perfect. Or pitch, pitch wise. Pitch, yeah, yeah. In all respects, mm. kind of. Some people just have it, though, don't they? Some people just sort of naturally have it, and and you don't mm. even have to stress too much when you record. I remember reading Graham Coxon about this. I know that Graham Coxon is a big fan of this record, and I know it mm. not from listening to him talk about it, but from listening to that record that Blur made in '97, which had yeah the all these kind Beetle of Beetlebum and all that. Yeah, Beetlebum and and Country Sad Ballad Man and it had all these tones yeah. and even it had some of the parts I could hear in it. Yeah. But I remember him saying that Stephen Street was always very keen that he tuned between takes and that he would pretend to tune between takes and Stephen Street <laughs> would say you haven't tuned now have you? But he was very keen on letting it get sloppy. But that conversely, yeah. when they made a record with William Orbit, who's, I guess, from sort of a dance music background, yeah. never asked him to tune. He wasn't interested in him tuning. And he started tuning himself because he felt wow. like maybe this is going a bit too far. <laughs> <laughs> I, th I think that there's, you know, there's still a, a willingness to keep things messy. And I think that um, the likes of St. Vincent, you know, she's still flying that fuzzy tone mm. flag that is just really, you know, she likes it gnarly. She likes it sort of just filthy and discordant. And you can tell that she's not sort of overly concerned with making everything neat and yeah. tidy in the guitar department, you know. A lot of those people would probably say there's just like a balance to strike. You know, if you mm. are very regimented about, for instance, the bass then you can afford to be a bit sloppier with yeah. the guitar or vice versa. On the radio the other day, it was Helter Skelter yeah. by the Beatles, which is just one of the most fucking out-of-tune songs I've ever heard. Mm. It's because they're just playing so hard that their strings are just going totally sharp by mm. like a semitone, mm. and it's all the way through the song, you know. But it's brilliant. It's just, you know, it's lively, it's raw, and... It's exciting to me. Most bands should just record as live as possible. You know, I'm I think you get that. something else from that. You see, I think every band should do at least one record where they take that as far as is logically possible. Well, which for some people is doing it with Albini. Yeah, yeah, of course. The minimum sort of processing and how you sound mm. in the room. And I think every band should do one record at least where they go as far as possible. I know that the Manics. You know, they did that one record with Albini. But I mm. even think a band like Coldplay should do a record like that. I, yeah, totally. I agree. Let us find out what you really can do. And I think that that idea is sort of almost sort of a bit of a Luddite idea in today's times and might mm. be seen as a bit old fashioned. But I'm all for that. At least once. Show us what you can really do in a room. Yeah, I know what you're saying. My favourite track on this record is Grave Architecture. Yeah. And my favourite bit on the whole record is the bit that's not 
quite at the very end, but it's just sort of just before the end where I'm guessing it's Malcolmus goes into this solo, which sort of seems to be on purpose hitting the wrong notes. And I just, I love that solo. The first time you hear it, it's wrong. And you're saying he's not playing the right notes. He's just playing wrong. Mm. The more you hear it, the more perfect (laughs) those notes are. Okay. 
you what you think about when they broke up and why they might have broken up and if they kind of like sort of achieved what they set out to achieve or more or what, if you have any thoughts on that. Well, I think it's quite telling because when Terror Twilight came out, I thought it was fantastic. And in, in, in the ensuing years, you've kind of got the feeling that most Pavement fans don't even think of that as an actual Pavement album. It's kind right. of considered the first Malcolm solo album because it's pretty well organised, you mm. know, and it's mm. pretty proggy in places, you know. There's a few songs in there that, again, are two or three songs in one kind of thing, like Speak, See, Remember or Cream of Gold and stuff like that. Maltmus has since referred to it as the accidental child of the Pavement catalogue. So it's kind of like, yeah, maybe by Bright in the Corners, he'd, he'd kind of made his point. I think maybe he got frustrated at the fact that he had to write the songs, teach the parts to everybody, and even then they didn't play them right. You know? right. But I don't really know. For me, having read a few things, I got the feeling that it was sort of more fun in the beginning, when it was more mm. impromptu and less kind of like structured. Yeah. Potentially it's Malcolmus is one of the ones who feels more like that in the band. Wow. Rather than wanting to make Pavement as sort of big as possible, he arguably was more reluctant to carry on and yeah. maybe he'd kind of had enough being a figurehead yeah. he always stood off to the side he was never that sort of traditional front man idea it was very much a shared sort of endeavor right yeah did you go and see them on the reunion i did i saw them quite a few times actually um i saw them we, we had a trip to amsterdam to go see them and it kind of i must admit it felt like a bit of an anti-climax i mean you gotta understand i've been waiting years for them to come back i was yeah. like one day man when they come back i'm gonna do what it takes to go see them and we went to amsterdam and various <laughs> mental things had happened during the day of course and um we just watching them i just kind of got the feeling of it's just fucking pavement, that's all it is. It's not that... <laughs> were they always this... Like, they just didn't appear to give a fuck. There wasn't a vibe about yeah. it. And I was like, aye, this is what they used to be like. And then I had I saw them a couple more times. I watched them at ATP, and then I ended up seeing them in Japan, actually watched them from the stage. And it being the fact that we were in Japan, they were in Japan, I think that there was a little more at stake for them and they were they all seemed to be a little more happy to be there right and so it was more more of an event for all of everyone concerned so i i really really enjoyed that it was fantastic yeah this is what i wonder about watching pavement is that was it ever a kind of transformative moment for anyone involved you know we've all watched bands and gone this could change my life this is like wow, this is amazing, I want to do this. Or mm. Did anyone ever feel <laughs> that way about pavement? <laughs> I certainly know friends that have had that experience, but I can almost certainly put it down to hard drugs. But <laughs> I've not had that really watching them a whole lot. Not really. Yeah. I've got certainly got much more out of the records than I have their live shows. And in fact, the first time I ever saw them was at Glastonbury, like the week after Terror Twilight came out, and I didn't really enjoy it. It mm. just kind of felt like they were... They kind of played one gear all the way through. There wasn't anything like Conduit for Sale or, you know, anything crazy. You know, there was, it was just kind of the more plodding kind of stuff. Well, actually, everything that we've been talking about is partly down to the sort of hit or miss nature of the way they play and in the way they write as much as anything else, that they could be off mm. one night and on the next night. And yeah. you can't really put your finger on what the difference between the two is. There's something just sort of swirling about 
how they play and how they think. Well, they're one of the few bands that can make or break their own show. And whereas mm. I feel like playing for Biffy and playing my own stuff, like we've already said, there's no room for jamming or improvisation of any kind, really, in that stuff. It goes how it goes, yeah. you know. You play um, it well or you don't. Yeah, you play right or wrong. With Pavement, there is that will-they-won't-they kind of thing, which, again, you know, you should be thankful for. You are going to see a different show every night, you know? Yeah, I agree with you. And I think it's it's something glorious about that that, again, is Mm. probably lacking a bit in bands that you would see these days. And actually, probably even in the 90s was maybe like a bit of an old-fashioned idea even then that you could be sloppy and improvise. Almost that sort of Grateful Dead idea of that's something for a band to do on stage that you wouldn't do on record. By the 90s, people were trying to make their statements on record more than on stage. Yeah. As much as anything, I think Pavement were a reaction against everything that was happening in the 80s, you know. Um, Just as Nirvana wore, it was the same kind of reaction that it doesn't have to be all glammed up and, and perfect sounding you know this is coming off the back of hysteria and all that mm. kind of stuff you know now there are some people who would say that pavement kind of maybe slightly choked at the idea of being a bit more polished and being a bit more successful but i wonder if that's even a reaction to nirvana and the early 90s and this sort of new dawn for rock music that they didn't want to be that band that sort of broke down barriers partly in reaction to the next big thing that rock music had suddenly become in certain circles you know well, i think that Malkmus he projects himself as, as a certainly a very sort of knowing and very well read very in terms of what's going on musically he seems to have his thumb on the pulse but mm. at the same time while the music i think is quite nonchalant and it sounds carefree i think it's actually incredibly brave yeah just the idea that would would there be any doubt in their minds that they could put something out like this and it'll be okay when the record company's expecting some hits you know (laughs) 